Revelation chapter 20. By now it's instinctive after 39 weeks of Revelation. And in Revelation 20, we're, uh, we want to take it relatively slowly. Uh, we, we really could have extended Revelation twice the length. We just wanted to get through it quickly, so that's why we're at where we're at. But now in Revelation 20, because we're in the good part, the millennium, the kingdom age, and then the eternal state, we want to look at it comprehensively because many Christians don't really understand what happens after they die, I think, as much as the Scripture says. So I, I want to make sure that we understand what the Bible says about these things as much as possible. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. We touched on verses 1 through 3 last time and talked about the millennium the kingdom age and the different viewpoints of the millennium and what it will be like on earth with the changes that will take place topographically, geographically, and so forth. And today we want to look at this sort of in order now. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fellowship that we have. We are together because of the right reason. It's because of Jesus Christ. We're gathered in his name for his glory, for his purposes, and we want to do your will upon the earth, as long as we are here, Father, that we might point the way to other people, to the kingdom of God. Thank you, Father, for the distinct and concrete answers that you provide about the future of mankind so that we don't have to guess, we don't have to suppose. Thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In London, there was a tavern that was known as the Devil and St. Dunstan. Lawyers would, and this is not a lawyer joke, by the way, would often frequent this place at their lunch hour. They would go to the pub for lunch and for a drink, and then they would hang on their door of their office the sign, Gone to the Devil which was the abbreviated form of the tavern, the devil in St. Dunstan. But simply put, they would just put gone to the devil. So when you look at it, you would realize, oh, they're down at the tavern. But because that sign was displayed so often, it became a term synonymous with going to ruin. And so you've heard the phrase, oh, they've gone to the devil. It comes from the devil in St. Dunstan. When Satan sinned and fell and caused the first parents in the garden to do the same, you, you might say that a sign was hung over the universe, gone to the devil, gone to ruin. And ever since that time, ruin has come upon the earth as people have successively been born with an evil nature, with a sin nature, and death has spread from generation to generation. We are awaiting the time, however, when Jesus Christ comes back, sets up his kingdom, and hangs his own sign under new management over the universe. And that will be the millennium. Until that time, evil is still spreads, and you might say that evil is having a heyday. Because more and more, evil is being rewarded and good is being punished. And those who hold any moral absolute at all are being seen as naive and wrong and evil. 
as seen by this little parable that I'm about to read. Once upon a time in a faraway country lived a little girl called Red Riding Hood. One day her mother asked her to take a basket of fruit to her grandmother, who had been ill and lived all alone in a cottage in the forest. It happened that a wolf was lurking in the bushes and overheard the conversation. He decided to take a shortcut to grandmother's house and get the goodies for himself. The wolf killed the grandmother, then dressed in her nightgown and jumped into bed to await the little girl. But when she arrived, he made several nasty suggestions and tried to grab her. But by this time, the child was very frightened and ran screaming from the cottage. A woodcutter working nearby heard her cries and rushed to the rescue. He killed the wolf with his axe, thereby saving Red Riding Hood's life. All the townspeople hurried to the scene and proclaimed the woodcutter a hero. But at the inquest, several facts emerged. The wolf had never been advised of his rights. The woodcutter had made no warning swings before striking the fatal blow. The Civil Liberties Union stressed the point that although the act of eating grandma may have been in bad taste, the wolf was only doing his thing and thus didn't deserve the death penalty. The SDS contended that the killing of the grandmother should be considered self-defense since, since she was over 30, therefore couldn't be taken seriously because the wolf was trying to make love, not war. On the basis of these considerations, it was decided that there was no valid basis for charges against the wolf. Moreover, the woodcutter was indicted for unaggravated assault, assault with a deadly weapon. Several nights later, the woodcutter's cottage was burned to the ground. One year from the date of, quote-unquote, the incident at Grandma's, her cottage was made a shrine for the wolf who had bled and died there. All the village officials spoke at the dedication, but it was Red Riding Hood who gave the most touching tribute. She said that, while she had been selfishly grateful for the woodcutter's intervention, she realized in retrospect that he had overreacted. As she knelt and placed a wreath in honor of the brave wolf, there wasn't a dry eye in the whole forest. Evil, rewarded, good, punished. And the more and more we see that played out, we cry, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. One day it will be. We don't see it yet. And that bothers a whole lot of folks. In fact, one of the reasons that skeptics have problems with God is they have a problem with evil. Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? If God exists, why does all this go on? Why doesn't he stop evil? And the classic argument is framed this way. If God is all-powerful, then he could destroy evil. If God is all good, then he would destroy evil. Evil is not destroyed, therefore there is no God. That's the argument. Chapter 20 will answer that argument that one day God will deal with it. Satan is bound for a thousand years, Jesus Christ rules, and even though the source of evil Satan will rise up again at the end of this period, God has a plan to destroy him after Satan's last attempt to deceive the nations. We read verses 1 through 3 
last week. Let's read verses 1 through 10 this week. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should not deceive the nations, or should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth, or on the plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We have then in these ten verses, and it's an outline form in your bulletin, Sort of an order of events. We kind of overviewed it last time, but now we have an order of events. One event happens before the millennium, another during, and three of them afterwards. We have, first of all, the removal of Satan. That happens before you can have a millennium. Then there's the reign of the saints. That happens during the thousand years. And then as soon as that is finished, we have three more. The release of Satan, the revolt of society, or a certain segment, and then the recapture of Satan. Let's peruse once again the first few verses, the removal of Satan. We discovered that last week. An angel who comes with a great chain lays hold of the dragon, verse 2, the serpent of old who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. I want to underscore this morning the fact that Satan is not yet bound in this pit. This is not the kingdom. In fact, I mean this today is not the kingdom. We're reading about it here, but we're not experiencing it. In fact, Satan has access to earth. He is roaming about, Peter said. He also has access somewhat to heaven. We read that in Revelation 12 where he accuses God's people before God day and night. And as we once said, it might shock some people, but Satan is not in hell. That is unscriptural. Satan has never been in hell. He will one day be there, but he's not there yet. When he goes there, he's not going to be the king in charge of hell. 
He's going to be the lowest creature in hell, the one who is tormented the most. Somebody might say, well, wasn't Satan defeated at the cross? Not like this. Not to the extent where he is incarcerated and has no freedom to deceive nations for a thousand years. Let me just give you a few scriptures to that effect. In Acts chapter 5, Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan is obviously active for that to happen. He's not bound and unable to deceive. He is active. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talked about delivering certain ones, he said, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about marriage and husbands and wives should not deny each other the physical enjoyment of marriage, saying, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He spoke of unbelievers whose minds the God of this world has blinded. They've been deceived. Ephesians 2 talks about the spirit who is presently at work in the children of disobedience. And then in 1 Thessalonians, he writes then and he says, I wanted to come to you time and time again, but Satan thwarted us from coming to you. And then Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. To say then that Satan is presently bound and unable to deceive the nations for a thousand years is simply not true. And if it is true, as we mentioned last week, some of the people who believe in kingdom now, dominion now theology, why do they go around binding him? if he's already bound. But if Satan is indeed loose and able to deceive, as the Bible and history tells us, that means he's not now in the pit. And the kingdom age, the millennium, is still future. Well, this has to happen for the millennium to happen, doesn't it? The dragon, Satan, has to be bound. Notice those names once again in verse 2. He's called the dragon. That reveals his character at the end of time. A devouring kind of a personality, unrelenting, vicious. He's called the serpent of old. That makes reference to his origin in Genesis, the serpent that beguiled Eve. He's called the devil. Diabolos is the term. It means slanderer, accuser. That's what he does now about you before God day and night. Then he is called Satan or adversary. He's your enemy. He's your adversary which, as we said before, should make you happy that he's your enemy. If you want any relationship with the devil at all, it should be as your enemy, not as your friend. You want God as your friend and the devil as your enemy rather than the devil as your friend and God as your enemy. So this is the safest possible relationship to have. That is the removal of Satan. That happens before the millennium, and we discussed the millennium last week. Now we come to the reign of the saints, verse 4. And I saw thrones. After the binding of Satan, John in his vision sees thrones, which would indicate ruling, reigning, judging during this period of time. Verse 4 says, judgment was committed to them. Verse 6, they shall reign with him a thousand years. So we have a group ruling, reigning, and judging with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. The problem is, we're not told who they are. It says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And because they are not described, we've had 2,000 years of debate as to who they are. 
Who will rule and reign a thousand years with Jesus Christ? The best way to answer that question is through the Bible and ask this question. What group or groups did God ever make a promise that they would rule and reign with him, that they would judge with him, that they would sit with him in the kingdom? Well, we would first go back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel sees in a vision the coming kingdom after the kingdoms of the earth have been destroyed. And this is what Daniel says. In Daniel chapter 7, in verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And down in verse 22, the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Same chapter down in verse 27, then the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So certainly Old Testament saints are included in the they of Revelation 20. Are there any others? Yep. Jesus told the 12 apostles when they were wondering, well, what are we going to get out of this? for following you? Was there a payoff? Jesus said to them in Matthew 19, Assuredly I say to you that in the, in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So the Old Testament saints and the twelve apostles were all promised a position of ruling reigning with the Messiah. Well, there's more. There's New Testament saints. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. His first letter, he said in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? It's couched in such a way that this is common knowledge, folks. The saints will judge the world. He even said we judge angels. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, If we endure, we shall reign also with him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, You are a royal priesthood, royal reigning regal priesthood. Then in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So you can't miss it. There's ruling and reigning promise to the New Testament saints. Then, in Revelation 5, remember the song that is sung before God, before the throne and the Lamb. The church sings, You have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So we've got Old Testament saints. We've got 12 apostles over 12 tribes of Israel. We've got New Testament saints. They would all be included in they. But there's another group that is also part of that. Notice the very next sentence in verse 4 of Revelation 20. Then I saw the souls. The reason he saw the souls is this is before this resurrection in his vision in verse 6, verse 5 and 6. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So these are tribulation saints. We've already talked about them. They'll also rule and reign for a thousand years with Jesus Christ. So all of the resurrected saints of all of the ages will be there ruling and reigning. 
Old Testament saints in their glorified bodies, 12 apostles in their glorified bodies, New Testament saints in their glorified bodies, tribulation saints in their glorified bodies, all ruling and reigning for a thousand years on earth, on the earth, the very place that Satan once ruled, the very place that Satan is expelled from and incarcerated from for a thousand years, the saints will rule and reign. Now the question comes up, well, who are we going to rule and reign? It says that we're going to reign and rule with him with a rod of iron. I mean, if, if all of these saints resurrected come on the earth, who's going to be left to reign? There'll be a lot of people. Remember, at the end of the tribulation, there will be people who go into the kingdom from the tribulation in their earthly bodies. God isn't going to kill all the 144,000 just so they can go into the kingdom age. They will go into the kingdom age in physical bodies. Every person who begins life in the millennium, whether in their fleshly bodies or resurrected, are all God's people. They're all in righteousness. But those who are on the earth will also be populating the earth. It says in Isaiah, people will be born during the kingdom age. And there will be a longevity on the earth. And a thousand years is a long time. So there will be people being born in the kingdom age upon the earth. We'll get back to that in just a moment. But the point is this. The saints will reign. God's people will reign. In the millennium, kings, rulers, presidents, prime ministers, those in any political office, judicial office, in the media, running television, running social institutions, will be God's people. Then there will be justice in the courts. Then there will be peace and harmony in the educational system. Then there will be honesty in the media. Then and only then. We are not going to bring in the kingdom and present it to Christ. We mentioned last week. Jesus will do that and we will rule and reign with him. We get part of the pie. Part of the rulership. And I would also say that saints won't have to figure out what to do. Being in our glorified bodies, we'll know how to carry out his will perfectly. We won't have to have committee meetings to figure it out. What do we do now? We'll know what to do in exercising his will. Third, then, there is the release of Satan. This sounds a little weird, but it's here. Verse 3, it says, After these things he must be released for a little while. He must be released for a little while. Then in verse 7, now when the thousand years have reached their fulfillment, or it says here expired, Satan will be released from his prison. This is one of the imponderables of Scripture. Why, once God has him incarcerated, would he ever let him go? Why would he lose him? I like the way Lewis Sperry Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, answered that question. He once said, you tell me why God loosed him the first time, and I'll tell you why God loosed him the second time. Both of those are odd imponderables. And I think that they're both related. God released Satan to begin with because he gave men free choice. And how can you give free choice unless you give two poles, two ideologies, two ways to choose. How can you say, you've got free choice, but I'll never allow you to choose anything but me? That would not be loving, equitable, or just. So after the thousand years, he is released. Now, everyone who enters the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium, will be righteous, will be a believer. 
It seems the Bible indicates that the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, takes care of all of the wicked. By the time the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, is ended, all of the wicked upon the earth will have been destroyed. Isaiah chapter 60 says, Then will all of your people be, righteousness and will be righteous and will possess the land forever. So those going into the kingdom, 144,000 Jews, righteous Gentiles who escaped the tyranny of the Antichrist, will be in their fleshly, physical bodies. They'll also enter into the millennium. They'll have a thousand years to have kids and populate the earth. Now, when you have kids in your physical body, what kind of kids will you have? Will they be perfect children? Now, I know you all think your children are perfect, but anybody who knows human nature knows that anyone born in physical flesh has a flesh nature and is born a sinner. All we can produce because of the depravity of man, the sin of Satan from the beginning, is sinful offspring with human nature which will have the ability to say yes or no to the reign of Jesus Christ. Though righteousness will be enforced with an iron rule, a rod of iron, and peace will prevail and utopia will prevail, and uh, all the weapons will have been smashed into plowshares, the human heart, the human nature will still be present and will still be able to choose and ultimately, we see here, will rebel. Many will come to Christ, many will not. And the point is this, people reject Jesus Christ not because of their environment so much as because of their nature. People sin because we are sinners by nature and by choice, not because of environment. Jeremiah was right, and this will prove he was right, when he said, The human heart is most deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can really know how bad it is? Satan will rebel causing a rebellion among the people by deception. And this sort of gets into the next section here, and we'll explain a little more as we go. The revolt of society. It says in verse 8, He will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them first thing that Satan does when he is released is organize a war and deceive nations. You see, a thousand years of being in jail has not rehabilitated Satan. Hasn't changed his nature. And though some might say, well, God should give him a second chance. Hey, a thousand years is a long time to think about it. Didn't change his character. He's still unrelentingly the devil, the deceiver. And he goes out to deceive the nations. You might say, boy, it's amazing to think that people would actively rebel against God. Not really, right? When Jesus came the first time, he was rejected. I mean, he lived, talked, walked among them, performed miracles. They saw it, and yet they received him not. Now, some people will say, you know, if you can just package the gospel in a very user-friendly, clever manner. If you can just package it right, unbelievers will come. What could be more clever than Jesus in the flesh walking, doing miracles around Galilee and Jerusalem? They had God in human flesh, and yet they rejected him. 
They didn't receive him. Why? Because they loved their sin. That's what Jesus said. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Neither will they come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. Another question that comes at this point is, well, if Satan is bound for a thousand years, how could people sin? How could people have evil thoughts in their hearts if there's no devil so that at the end of the thousand years would even join a rebellion? Don't you need the devil around to sin? No, you don't. Sin comes from the flesh. It comes from the flesh. Satan simply creates an environment that stimulates the flesh. If you remove the environment, you remove some of the stimulation, but there's still the rebellious heart. Although, we don't like to hear that. We like to say, but it's not my fault. I don't sin because I'm a sinner by nature. I sin because of my environment or because of what's around me, these other people. They certainly add to it. But sin lies in the heart of man. There's an article in a Southern California newspaper a few years ago called Rent a Jogger was the ad. Rent a Jogger. Here's the ad. Rent me for $1.95 and I will jog for you at least one mile a day, weather permitting, for the next year. That sounds hokey. A 45-year-old stockbroker put it in and gave, promised a certificate if you sent him $1.95 that would read this, quote, your jogger is securing for you the benefits of a healthful glow, extraordinary stamina, an exciting muscle tone, and power-filled sense of total well-being. You know, within a few days that that ad was placed, 322 people sent in $1.95, which more than covered for the expense of taking out the ad. I think when it comes to evil, we would like to rent a sinner. <laughs> rent a demon. Well, the devil made me do it. The devil came into my mind. Now, you don't need the devil. You've got a fallen nature. The Bible repeatedly, over and over again, says we are estranged from God by birth. And that's why we need salvation. I'm not saying evil spirits aren't bad. They are bad. They are evil. They're powerful. But we sin because it is human nature. You see, some people have said, well, good upbringing will always produce good offspring. Bad upbringing will produce bad offspring. If we just create the right environment, you'll always have no, pro you'll have no problems. And that's what we've tried to do in the United States, just the right environments. The Minnesota Crime Commission released this as a partial reason for the rise in the crime rate. Quote, this is the Minnesota Crime Commission's look on it. Quote, every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it, his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny any of these, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. Why is there crime? Why is there murder? Why is there alcoholism and drug abuse and sexual immorality? It's because of the evil heart of man. And even a perfect environment, even a thousand years of Christ ruling and walking among men, won't change the fallen nature unless the fallen nature of the person, unless that person decides, I want my sins forgiven, I want to follow Jesus Christ by volition. 
See, a psychologist blames the problems on a behavior disorder. Sociologist calls it a cultural lag. A minority group say the problem is racism. The sociologist or the socialist says that it's class struggle, the rich and the poor. The Bible says it's the sinful nature of man. And the only remedy is the new birth. That's why Jesus said to Mr. Religion himself, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. It's the sinful nature of man. That's why God stepped out of eternity into time 2,000 years ago to deal with sin. That's why he came. You can't have an effective cure without an accurate diagnosis. And Dr. Jesus assessed the problem and the sickness of humanity and provided the remedy, a relationship with him. Add to this human nature, verse 8, and you have a recipe for problems. It says he, Satan, will go out to deceive the nations. There will be again a massive deception that will appeal to the fallen human nature. He deceives the nations. He's made his career doing this, deceiving. How does he deceive now? He spreads lies, false religions, false cults, false ideologies, philosophies, false doctrine, false security among believers. First, or 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I should say false security among unbelievers. There's a lot of unbelievers who think they're saved because they have a belief in a God, a higher power, and they're blinded, they're deceived. The God of this world has deceived them. John said this in his last chapter of 1 John, we know that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The word lie means to lie like a boat stranded lying on a sandbar. It's stuck. Or an animal lying in a bog, a swamp. It can't move. It's stuck. We know the whole world lies stuck under the sway of the evil one. Satan has duped the world in history. He will dupe the world in the tribulation period. And afterwards, he will deceive those who give themselves over to it. Notice in verse 8, it says that Satan gathers Gog and Magog to gather them together for battle. Well, what's that all about? Well, we don't have enough time to read all of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and discuss the similarities and the differences. I'm going to let you do that on your own. Let me sum it up. Gog is typically seen as a ruler. Magog is the ancient grandson of Noah who settled in the regions north of the Black Sea, the area of Russia. And there is a battle that will come about in the future, as we look to the future. The battle of certain forces that would come down upon Israel and Jerusalem. The battle of Gog and Magog. Now, some people say that chapter 20 Gog and Magog is the same as Ezekiel 38 and 39 Magog. Others say it's different. And people debate ad infinitum, ad nauseum over this issue. I'm not going to get into that. There's going to be some kind of rebellion. It could be Ezekiel 38 and 39 after this point. It's the only other reference to it in the Bible. Or it could be a title. Just like we would talk about today, somebody's Waterloo. Not referring to the ancient historical battle of Waterloo, but simply as a disastrous battle that they're on the verge of. It's a title. It's a summation of it. So without getting bogged down into that, let me just sort of sum this up practically by saying a couple of things. Don't underestimate 
the devil. He will not change. He is unrelenting. He is a skillful enemy. He has spent thousands of years studying human beings. He knows just how to attack. At the same time, don't overestimate the power of the devil, as so many Christians still do. The devil made me do it. The devil did this. The devil's under a bush. The devil's behind the door. Bind the devil. And they're always worried about the devil instead of concentrating on Jesus Christ. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Hey, listen, Satan on his best day can't match Christ. So when Satan bugs you, have Jesus answer the door. Be clothed in his righteousness, in prayer, and the word. Hide behind him. Know this, that Satan has limited powers. We see here, right? God's in charge. He puts him in prison, he releases him, and he ends his career. It's all under the sovereign control of God. So Satan has limited powers and operates only by allowance, by permission. Satan had to get God's permission and only up to a certain point when it came to dealing with Job. Satan had to get Jesus' permission for the demons to go into the herd of swine in Galilee. One time Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. So, sovereign control. And then finally, fifthly, we have the recapture of Satan. Verse 10. The devil who, received, who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Well, you don't hear those two words much in churches these days, do you? Fire and brimstone. Those have sort of been cut out of the Bible. Where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. This is the recapture of Satan. After his last fling, his last hurrah, his last stand, comes his doom. You might say comes his career change. The one who caused so much hassle, havoc, suffering, will be the one who receives hassle, havoc, suffering, pain. Now, Satan's judgment was assured at the cross, but it won't be till now that that judgment is finally meted out. The prophecy in Genesis that the seed of the woman, Christ, would crush the head of the serpent, the devil, finally and fully happens here as he is cast into the lake of fire. Now, let's just review this. Satan's penalty is delayed and comes in stages. In Revelation 12, he's cast out of heaven completely to the earth, so he has no access at all to the heavenly realms, he and all of his demon hordes. Then, for a thousand years, he's incarcerated into the abyss. Then he's finally released, and he's cast into, it says here, the lake of fire and brimstone, which is a sulfur-like chemical fire symbolizing torment. He's there with his buddies, the Antichrist and the false prophet, verse 10, where the beast and the false prophet are. How long is he there? How long is hell? Is it uh, temporary? Do you burn it off and then get out and... You rehabilitate. It, it says here, and I'm not going to try to explain it away, it says day and night. That's continually, forever and ever. And some will say, are you sure hell is eternal? Well, let me put it this way. I'm sure that heaven is eternal. I'm sure that hell is eternal as much as I'm sure heaven is eternal because the same language is applied to both spheres. Heaven is a place where we live forever and ever. God is the one who lives forever and ever. 
And if you say that hell is not eternal, then heaven is not eternal either. Neither is God. And then what are we doing here? Forever and ever. This is the final hell. This is the last place. And this is the end of Satan's career. By the way, hell was designed for the devil when he fell. It was not designed for people. People say, how could God send me to hell? God, God doesn't want to send you to hell. You'd send yourself to hell. God designed heaven to be inhabited by people. This is what Jesus Christ said. He referred to hell as, quote, everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But the decision is ours. God, who gave free choice in the beginning, will honor free choice. He would have to, to be equitable, to be loving. One person put it this way, hell is God's great complement to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. You see, God is very pro-choice when it comes to salvation. He won't force you to go to heaven. You think God's going to say, if, if you live your life on earth, I don't want anything to do with God. You think God's going to force you to be in heaven with Him? You wanted nothing to do with God, and then you're going to go to heaven? And I've heard this at funerals of unbelievers. Oh, he's passed away into eternal glory. He did? He hated God his whole life, wanted nothing to do with God, and God's going to force him to be with him all of eternity? I don't think so. God will honor choice. So this is the devil's last stand and the devil's last destiny, and all those who follow him are then mentioned in verses 11 through 15. And next week we'll talk about the, the two resurrections and the two deaths that are spoken about here. But reading this, little wonder, little wonder why the devil hates the book of Revelation so much and would hate messages like this being preached. Little wonder why the devil would keep the Bible away from people, why he would attack it so much and cause people to not read it, even Christians to put it down and not read it in their devotions and to judge all things by it. There was a Soviet official years ago when communism reigned in that part of the world, and he was asked why Bible study was frowned on and why anybody who distributed the Bibles or produced Bibles was punished severely. And he said, quote, We find that the reading of this book changes people in a way that's dangerous to our state. It's the same with the enemy, the devil, Satan. He is, the devil has found that anybody who reads this book and believes in it, it's dangerous to his cause. It's dangerous to his state. In fact, he loves it if he can deceive a person enough to say, well, there really isn't even a devil. And hell is just here. This is heaven or hell. Oh, he's laughing all the way to the bank with that one. This event ends the career of the devil as we know it. And I, I want to say this. I, I don't think this brings joy to the heart of God. I think God's glad to see rebellion done, sin done. We all will. We'll rejoice. The universe will sigh, a sigh of relief. But remember, when God created the devil, the Bible says in Ezekiel 28, he was perfect in all of his ways from the day he was created. Isaiah 14 calls him Lucifer, light bearer, son of the morning, God's most beautiful creation, now ending in infamy like this. God's happy to get rid of the rebellion, but this must pain the heart of God. So yes, like the London Tavern, the world has gone to the devil. Jesus will come, hang up a sign under new management, 
And though there will be a final rebellion at the end of that, it will be forever quelled. There will be no more death after this, no more sorrow after this. Back to the classic argument of evil. Let's go way back to that first thing we mentioned at the beginning. The skeptic who would say, if God is all-powerful, he could destroy evil. If God was all good, he would destroy evil. Evil is not destroyed, thus there is no God. First of all, that's an arrogant assumption. You are assuming that because evil is not yet dealt with, that it never will be. And that's kind of arrogant to assume that, especially in the light of Revelation 20 when God says he will one day deal with it. Let me reframe the argument then. It becomes a validation for God. It goes like this. If God is all-powerful, he can defeat evil. If God is all-good, he will defeat evil. Evil is not yet defeated. Therefore, God can and one day will destroy and defeat evil. And that's when all the prayers will be answered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In Cincinnati, in the Cincinnati Post years ago, on Christmas, the Christmas edition, the editors decided to hand out a newspaper, a little bit different flavor. They decided to take all of the bad news that usually is on the front page, two pages, and put all good news on the front page, and put all the bad news at the end. And they said, the newspaper has to tell the good and the bad news to be fair. But he goes, why is it always out of proportion? Why do we always put the bad news on the front? So he said, you know, it's Christmas. We'll put the bad news in the back, the good news in the front, and across the headlines of the newspaper just said, Merry Christmas. You read the newspaper, you go, man, what a great day. Look at this happen and that. This is awesome. And you get to the back page and you realize they just pulled a switcheroo. But imagine when one day all the newspapers in every city over all the earth will be righteous any would-be rebellion would be instantly quelled with a rod of iron, and even the ultimate rebellion at the end of the thousand years, led by Satan, will not even really be able to get off the ground much. They'll be zapped from heaven. Then the eternal state comes, and we get into that in chapter 21. Let's pray. Lord, as puzzled as we are with evil around us, we realize that you will one day deal with it, we look forward to that. Until then, we realize that we are your children in a, in a kingdom unseen, unrealized physically on the earth, but nonetheless, we're part of the kingdom of God, waiting for our king to return, waiting for him to establish his reign, waiting for righteousness to prevail. We remember the words of our Savior who said, My kingdom is not of this world. There will come a time when your kingdom does take over this world. Lord, it excites us to know that you have a plan even in the light of such enemies as Satan and such lovers of evil as the devil, his minions, his ministers. Lord, we are so grateful that you have given us a book and several books under one book, the Bible, that tells us the future. We don't have to call a phone number or look inside of a newspaper, or find a guru or a medium. We can just read what you have written, and you tell us what will happen. And we can have assurance in it. Thank you, Father. Lord, I pray that we would walk wisely, circumspectly, because the days are evil. 
Lord, I pray that you'd help us to walk close to you in these days and lead many others to the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.